to the Holiday Moons Podcast, where we share our love for the holidays with you year-round. This is Sydney, and I will be continuing my series on unusual tourist attractions in the U.S., specifically the world's largest ball of twine. Fun. This is Cole, and I'm going to be continuing my Off the Beaten Path series, journey around the, uh, the continents, and we'll be moving from Asia to Africa today. This is Randy. And Beth. And we will be talking about our recent trip to Niagara Falls. Fun. As always, we begin with our holiday happenings for the week. This was a short week for us with the fourth kind of in the late middle part of it. But we did want to do a follow-up on Orange Julius. At our last podcast, I gave some fascinating information about Orange Julius. So if you didn't hear that yet, go ahead and listen to that. During our last podcast, I brought up a recipe, but we had not tried it yet. We made that this last week, and it required fresh squeezed orange juice, which we did with large oranges, simple syrup, dry milk powder, egg white powder, and vanilla, and crushed ice. So we did this, and I did not find it very flavorful. No, it was kind of weak. Flavor was weak. Yes. It was there, but it was weak. Right. It was not something that I would repeat. It is not a recipe that Mm -hmm. I would repeat. Now, we ended up trying to add more orange juice, more vanilla, and you could kind of see how you could get there flavor-wise, but... You have had to add a lot more to get that flavor. Yes. And it it just... it, It kept falling short of the orange Julius flavor. So, I would... I'm probably going to try a different recipe next time. Yeah, it was a lot of work for, you know, not a lot of value <laughs> to, right, to yeah. us. But uh, but we'll try it again. We have a orange juicer now, which right. makes the... An electric juicer. The hardest part is juicing the fresh oranges. Right. We're doing that in a fresh way. But now, since we have the orange juicer, that that's a lot easier. Right. We will continue with our topics of the summer with Sydney's unusual attractions. So continuing our adventure looking at unusual tourist attractions in the U.S., the USA holds the world's largest ball of twine. What? Yes. USA. USA. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Um, For twine at least, right? Yes. Yes. Frank Stober started the world's largest ball of twine in 1953. <laughs> that was uh, he started it then, so it was a small ball of twine at that point. Yes, it was just a string of twine. <laughs> yes, my research shows that he started this, and that neighbors were interested, and they all gave him basically twine to add to this large ball. So he started it intentionally to make a large ball of twine. A large, yes. Oh. In 1953, okay. he had a vision. <laughs> he was a visionary. <laughs> yes. So it's basically, apparently there are different types of quote-unquote largest ball of twine. Okay? So this particular one that I'm talking about is in Cocker City, Kansas. Okay. okay? And it is the largest ball of Cecil twine built by a community. Oh. Yes. That's nice. And so Cecil twine, which I, I didn't realize, is basically just a white um, fiber that's used in making twine. Okay. Um, but they also have, which I'm not going to discuss today, but I thought was interesting, like the um, largest ball of Cecil twine built by a single person. Um, heaviest twine ball, largest nylon twine ball. Wait, these are all in the same town? No. Oh, these are okay. like different towns. <laughs> that would be funny. These it are just called like twine town or something like that. <laughs> Cocker City Twine Town. I, I feel like that would be a great attra- uh, attraction. Twine Town, USA. <laughs> That's right. Basically, this ball had 1.6 million feet of twine and 11 foot diameter when Frank Stober died in 1974. Cocker City, and he, he basically gave it to Cocker City, Kansas to house. So right now, um, they basically located under a pavilion. So they built a pavilion over it, I guess, to help um, with the elements. Preserve it. Apparently, every August, they have a twine-a-thon, and where more twine is added to the ball. 
So anybody can go up and, and, and then add to the ball, but they have to measure it and be very specific about how it's being added so that they can um, continue being the largest ball of Cecil Twine built by a community. Oh, okay. That record. Yeah, well, that makes sense that you'd need to keep really good records. That's right. Um, by 2006, the Twine Ball had reached 17,886 pounds, a circumference of 40 feet, and a length of, ready, 7,801,766 feet. Wow. Yes. Do you have a do you have a picture there of like somebody next to the twine ball? Actually, do let me. Okay, so I'd this is one to... picture. Hmm. So I'm just showing them a picture. So yeah, it's under a pavilion, like a little gazebo area, and um, and yeah, it's pretty it's pretty hefty. In 2013, its weight was estimated at a 19,973 pounds. In August 2014, the ball measures 41.42 feet in circumference, 8.6 feet in diameter and 10.83 feet in height and of course it's still growing because of the um twine-a-thon happenings <laughs> so it's not really a ball per se anymore because the bottom of it it's is, kind of flat it's kind of flat now because obviously it's well, so it's still, wide it's still considered the the world's largest ball of twine yeah but um, i will say probably like kids and stuff like wanting to add to the bottom that's probably more the more preferable Plus, um, it's probably more stable because if it was truly a ball, and say a tornado, because it's in Kansas, came along, yeah, it, it that would be like a ball could end up anywhere. Yeah, it would basically be a um, what 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 do you call those tumbleweed? Yeah, <laughs> tumbleweed. World's largest tw- tumble twine tumbleweed, capable of destroying homes. <laughs> yes. So it actually has a website of its own. Okay. Of its own, yes. So regarding the Twinathon, which again is held each August. Twine is measured and added to the world's largest ball of twine by visitors and by residents of the community. It also sounds like you can, if you miss the Twine-a-thon, you can then schedule with people, which you can find online. Probably official people. Official people (laughs) um, to add twine to the ball. Like if you're just visiting and, and I don't know, it's like October or whatever. As opposed to like... Random like twine anarchists. <laughs> so it's funny that um, the official time frame is August mm-hmm. to do it. So they probably have like official people there yes. already set up. But if you want to do it off season, mm-hmm. you have to call ahead and schedule and yes. something. That's funny. Yes. And they have the exact twine. They measure it out. It also sounds like they have other things going on at the Twine-a-thon. Oh, wait. Um, so it's not bringing your own twine. Correct. So twine there. <laughs> okay. Yes. No, that, that's why it's called Cecil Twine. Like, they have the twine. They measure it out. You can put, you know, you can be the one to wrap it around, but that, they, that's, so that's interesting. The town controls what twine is added. That's why it looks so nice and um, smooth mm-hmm. and all, you know, it looks all Beautiful. like one. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, so the Twinathon also has like, Horseshoe pitching contests, car show, food. So it sounds like a nice little event in town. Like, like a, a little fair. festival. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm just sad that everything isn't like a twine pond. <laughs> no, like twine themed <laughs> yeah. things. That's like right. the, the twine shoe toss yeah. or something like that. The kissing booth is like actually just part of the twine ball. <laughs> <laughs> I hope they don't do kissing booths anymore. <laughs> That's gross. Unless they do it, and then that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I was say, at Hallmark shows, sometimes they still show kissing boots. Do they really? Sometimes. But that, that's in a magical Hallmark world. That's right. That's right. And an extra fun little tidbit, according to the KansasSampler.org, this ball of twine is one of the eight wonders of Kansas State. In America. That's funny. Yes. Eight wonders of Kansas State. So, How many wonders does Kansas State have? At least eight. At least eight. This is one of them. So um, feel free to check it out. Sounds fun. Um, fun little event. And let us know. Very fun. So we're going to move from the flatlands of Kansas over to the flatlands of Southwest Africa today. So I'm going to be talking about Namibia. And if you've never heard of Namibia, or maybe if you don't really know where it is, it's in southwest Africa. It, it borders the Atlantic Ocean on the west, and it is 
right above South Africa and right below Angola. So again, just like Sri Lanka and Bulgaria, we're kind of going off the beaten path here. Uh, where are some places in Africa, you know, I've asked this about the other continents, where are some places in Africa that you guys would think of as good vacation spots? Egypt with the pyramids. Egypt, yep. I always wanted to go to Egypt. So yeah. fun, yeah. Now, were you in denial? <laughs> <laughs> When you were thinking about that. I also think of Morocco as another place. Yeah. That's a good one. Yeah, those are sort of big places in that North African kind of still Middle Eastern area. Are there any places in sub-Saharan Africa that you guys could think of that people go for on vacation? Well, there are safaris, right? But I don't know. Like a particular place. Right. Yeah. What about Tanzania? Tanzania. That's. I think that's uh, one that a lot of people go to for safaris. I think Kenya might be the biggest one that people go to for safaris yeah. in Africa. Based on my movie watching, I think <laughs> Madagascar, particularly the penguins of Madagascar, always sounded like a fun place. Sound like a fun time. Madagascar is very uh, famous for its lemurs. So a right. lot of people, yeah, a lot of people will go there for vacation. Um, but there's a lot of neat places in Africa that you can check out that are sort of off the beaten path. And I came across Namibia as one of those interesting places. Unfortunately, there are a lot of interesting places in Africa that are not quite so safe to visit. So that sort of has to be your first priority when you're, right. uh, when you're planning a vacation there, especially off the beaten path. But what I came across said that Namibia was one of the safest places in Africa that you could travel to. So a little background about Namibia. It is a sort of roughly rectangular shaped nation. And it's one of the, uh, it's a panhandle nation, which means that it has a large mass of land and one tiny little strip of land coming out of it. Wait, one large mass of land and then one, oh, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Like think of like Oklahoma. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. Okay, yeah. yeah, yeah. Florida's the same way. Florida's the same way. Florida has a famous uh, panhandle, yeah. so it's always interesting to... Afghanistan has a panhandle. Texas has a panhandle. So they call it a Texas panhandle, even right. though it doesn't look like what you're describing exactly. Right, what I'm describing is a very thin strip right. of land. Um, but Namibia is a very sparsely populated country. That's about a population of about... 2.53 million people. The currency is the Namibian dollar, but you can also use uh, South African currency in Namibia. To give sort of a background of the nation, it was heavily influenced by the South African Bantu migration, if you know anything about that, and then later by the influx of Dutch Boers. So the Boers had a large influence on local populations, a lot of them adopting sort of Dutch construction styles. And if you don't know who the Boers were, they were Dutch immigrants who adopted the Afrikaans language. Very significant in Southern Africa. Uh, and then in 1884, one of the few places in Africa which was colonized by the German Empire. It is one of the few places in Africa that, interestingly, has a large German influence. You see a lot of Gothic buildings in Namibia, and they have a lot of food that's a mix of traditional African cuisine, but also you have like Namibian sauerkraut and Namibian sausage. That's so funny. Yep. So despite the fact that it was a German colony, the language in Namibia is still English, the official language. So if you're an English speaker, you can get around Namibia pretty easily. That was another thing that oh, that's I heard. nice. I also heard that it wasn't the cheapest place in Africa to go on vacation to, which I was like, oh, no, well, what does that mean? It's not the cheapest place. But what I figured out that means is that there are some places where, you know, a couple of dollars will get you, like, a hotel room and all kinds of amenities. It's more, I guess, equivalent to, like, a European vacation. Oh, I see. So compared to other Africans. Compared to, like, ridiculously cheap African, you know, vacation spots... It's a little more expensive. It's still very cheap as far as vacations go. Compared it, to what we probably are used to. Compared to what we're used to. If you're going to Florida or something like that, you know, it's going to be a lot cheaper than that, aside from your flight. So one US dollar will get you about 14 Namibian dollars. Wow. And a meal in Namibia for, for a person is about 150 Namibian dollars, which is about... 
10 bucks, 15 bucks. So it's a, you know, reasonably priced. It's not, you know, you're not going to be put up at the best resorts in Namibia for cheap, but you can get around pretty easily for not a whole lot of money. Uh, The best time to go is during the dry season, which is... (laughs) That uh, makes sense. Yeah. You wouldn't want to go during the wet season. season, Which is summer in the northern hemisphere and winter in the southern hemisphere between sort of what you think of as April to August kind of time would be the best time to go. Um, You have sort of more dry climate and also animals are going to be a little more active because they have a lot of safaris in Namibia. What is the temperature there? So that's an interesting question. I actually just pulled it up on my phone. So in the capital city of Windhoek, which is a very German looking because it's spelled uh, W-I-N-D-H-O-E-K. Windhoek is a very sort of German sounding name, which is, yes, which is. is cool. But looking at tomorrow's, it's night right, right now in Namibia. So looking at tomorrow's forecast, it says that it's going to be anywhere from 71 to 78 degrees. Because this is their winter season, May through August, and that's their mild season. Well, much cooler there than here. Well, it's their winter, right? So it's still it's a warm winter, but it's it's a um, probably a good time to go temperature wise. Yeah, sounds very temperate. It sounds like a nice temperature to be out and about doing things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one of the things that uh, maybe is well known for is all of its campsites. Ooh. So it has campsites all across the country, which a lot of people utilize. But you also have to be prepared because it is a sort of what you would think of as a desert country in a lot of its different areas the nights are going to get very cold Mm. Uh, and it's recommended to stay in the campsites because there are there are plenty of wild animals some of which include wild cats which are not like feral cats right (laughs) yeah they're not the feral cats that are going to run away from you right (laughs) they're the predators that might run toward you but i think the coolest thing about namibia isn't you know how cheap it is or the campsites but it's all of the the natural geographic phenomena. So, uh, a couple of the a couple of the most well known natural tourist locations are the Skeleton Coast, which is the the northern coast. Uh, and the interesting thing about now, people can sort of navigate the Skeleton Coast. But when uh, Europeans and others were first exploring. The way that the tides are, you can get into the Skeleton Coast with ships, but you cannot get out. So there's plenty of like ship graveyards along the coast. Uh, it was described by some Europeans, and they ended up writing a book called this as The Land God Made in Anger. Wow. That's interesting. So why, if there are high tides, if there's enough tide to come in, why could they not go out again? It's because of the... Direct, it's directional tides. Oh, so oh, that's learned, interesting. People just learn not to go there. So people learn not to go to the Skeleton Coast because they couldn't get away from it. Wow. So they would be shipwrecked there. Um, and it's very interesting. A lot of uh, a lot of Namibia is sort of these sweeping sand dunes. Interestingly, of different sort of shades. So along the Skeleton Coast, uh, it's very white sands, which is cool, and it's very dark blue waters like it's not what you would think of as like the greek coast white sands like crystal blue waters it's white sands very dark waters which sort of adds to you know i see that i could you know i say oh i could see that being called skeleton coast Mm -hmm. i think the coolest thing that i saw was a desert and salt flats called sosus vlai uh and it's it's something that you really have to i recommend just going on to google and searching this because it's it's these red sand dunes it's another one of those things that looks otherworldly it's red sand dunes mixed with white flats there's skeletal looking trees along these flats i'll have to show you guys a a picture here oh that's very interesting isn't it i was just looking at a picture of the skeleton coast because i was having a hard time visualizing it but it's really pretty it's it's it is yeah not something you just see out and about. Oh, that looks like something from a movie. Yeah. From like 12 Monkeys. Oh, yeah. <laughs> wow, so that's, that's interesting. So that's Sosa's Fly. So when you're traveling to Namibia, it's going to be a lot of natural geography that you're going to be checking out. It's not going to be a whole lot of, you know, cathedrals or what you would think of in a European vacation. Although it sounds like the capital in one of the um, 
coastal cities has some of that in it. Has some of that in it, and that's that's a cool <clears throat> cool place to go to see that mix of German and African culture coming together, along with some of the Dutch Boer influence from South Africa. There's a ton of canyons, plateaus, water parks. Um, there's a number of churches, uh, nature reserves. I was going to say they have. It sound, looked like they had a safari kind of area. Yeah, they have. They have a number of safaris. I think they're um, the Etosha National Park is their big wildlife reserve. So you can go there and check that out. Namibia just has a very interesting, different coloration of its sands and cliffs. Like the Nabarand Nature Reserve has very red sand. It has a picture here of red sand against like dark brown mountains and white bushes like against oh that's interesting <laughs> that's also interesting <laughs> you second that motion <laughs> um yep yeah, but not a not a very expensive place to go safe place i've heard that it's a great first country to go if you're visiting sub-saharan africa and it sounds like because you get part of the european culture mixed in with the african culture um, that it's a and they speak English and they speak English right. and it sounds like it's an English that you can you can get around with yeah. like there's not a lot of like a lot of places that you can go to like Ghana where they're English speakers it's really a different language because yeah. of the way they speak English hmm. so it sounds like you can get around in Namibia speaking you know your, what you would think of as Anglo-European English like everywhere else that I've been reviewing, now I'm sad because I want to go there. <laughs> so you've brought up three places off the beaten path so far. Namibia, Sri Lanka, and what was the Bulgaria. first place? Bulgaria. But where it was a specific place, wasn't it? Oh, it was just Bulgaria. Okay. And Bulgaria. It was, uh, you're thinking of the Dolphinarium. <laughs> the Dolphinarium <laughs> in, in, in Bulgaria. The of highlight course. of all of Bulgaria. <laughs> so my question to the four of us is, how would we rank them each individually? Of those three, which three, which would you say you'd want to go to first of those three? Bulgaria just sounded fascinating. It, maybe it was because it was the first one you did, but mm. I found myself thinking that would be a really cool place to mm -hmm. go. So probably Bulgaria for me. Okay, what do you think, so? Bulgaria would be very nice, but I maybe it's kind of um, a throwback to when I was a kid and the nostalgic value. But I would love to go onto like a safari, an actual mm -hmm. safari. Um, we've been to. Disney several times, you know, well, several times. We've been to Disney. <laughs> Understatement. <laughs> A number of times. <laughs> but um, we've gone to the Disney World Animal Kingdom Park many a time. And we would go on their, you know, little safari ride and see lions and elephants. And that was always really fun for me as a kid. So I would, I would probably eventually like to go somewhere in Africa just to kind of look around and, and see yeah. the sights. Mm-hmm. How would you call? I don't know. They all sound very interesting. I think that for me, it would probably be Sri Lanka, then Namibia, and then Bulgaria. Obviously, I looked them all up, so I really want to go to all of them. Right. But Bulgaria is the most similar. I spent a, uh, I studied in Russia for a summer. So Bulgaria would be the most similar to what I already have experience with. Mm -hmm. And I studied India in school. So Sri Lanka would be sort of right up that uh, right up that alley of what I would find interesting. But honestly, after looking up Namibia, it's close because with all these natural, you know, geographic landmarks and stuff, like Sosa's Fly just looks like crazy. Like I'd love to go there and, and visit. But I would say number one for me, Sri Lanka. For me, I think it is Bulgaria, then Namibia. And then Sri Lanka. Oh, I thought you were going to say Disney. <laughs> Disney. It's always Disney. Okay, Disney first. And then, but, uh, it's like Disney, Bulgaria, Disney, yeah, Namibia, Disney, <laughs> Sri Lanka. So I think that, like you said, all of them sound very interesting, though. Mm -hmm. They all have unique aspects to them. And all of them have multi types of environments and activities that you can do right you get the from the beaches to the mountains to deserts to history to the jungles jungles and, i mean it's just yeah. so many different things that you can do in each place so what I'd, I'd really like to do is maybe eventually someplace in my life at some time in my life you know after i do next week's two because it's going to be a four-part series i can go to all four of these countries, oh. like over a summer, that would be. And then rate them. Yep, like, and then rate them. Like a bucket list or a dream board. A dream board. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Nailed it. Nailed it. <laughs>
Thanks, Cole, for sharing another fun off the beaten path. You're welcome. And does Namibia have Africa's largest ball of twine? It does not have Africa's <laughs> largest ball of twine. Yeah. Does Namibia have waterfalls? It does have waterfalls. It actually has the uh, Rakana Falls in Namibia, which are really cool and just another natural phenomena to, uh, to check out while you're there. Do you know where else has waterfalls? No. <laughs> where is it? I've, I've never even heard of waterfalls. <laughs> Niagara has waterfalls. Niagara yes. Falls has waterfalls. <laughs> now, the city of Niagara is connected to the Niagara Falls. So Beth and I had the opportunity over the 4th of July to go up to Niagara Falls with our friends, um, the Andersons, Eric and Trish. Hi, Eric and Trish. <laughs> and we went up on Wednesday. We stopped at my dad's on the way up. It's about a seven, seven and a half hour trip to go there from here. So we figured we could go up halfway to my dad's the rest of the way on the 4th and spend uh, the afternoon on the 4th, all of the 5th uh, in the Niagara area. And that was a lot of fun, although they just happened to have a heat wave right when we went up. So we were hoping for a little bit of cooler weather. And I'm sure technically it was cooler than here, but yeah, not it, by much. It was rough here. Was it? Yeah. So first I wanted to share some fun facts about Niagara Falls for those who may not be aware of, of some of these. So first of all, Niagara Falls is comprised actually of three waterfalls. Uh, most people are familiar with the Horseshoe Falls, which is known as the Canadian Falls, although they connect to both sides, the American side and the Canadian side. The American Falls, which is purely on the American side. And then a smaller falls um, that I always thought was part of the American Falls, but they actually it's technically its own falls, and that's the Bridal Veil Falls. So the vertical height of Niagara Falls is 176 feet. It's interesting because part of the history, they talk about the discovery of the falls by Europeans. And the person who brought that information back estimated it at 600 feet. So he was way off. <laughs> <laughs> wow. It is impressive, though. It is very impressive. Well, remember, people were shorter back then. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that changed feet. <laughs> During peak periods of flow in the summer and fall, more than 700,000 gallons of water per second pour over Niagara Falls. And I didn't know this. Four of the five Great Lakes drain into Niagara River. Superior, Michigan, Huron, and Erie before emptying into Lake Ontario. These five Great Lakes make up almost one-fifth of the world's freshwater supply. Wow. Yeah. Fish actually travel over Niagara Falls. 90% of the fish that travel over the falls survive. People say, how do you know that fish fall over the falls? Well, if you ever go on one of the little tourist attractions, which is the Cave of Winds, you actually go to the bottom of the falls, and people have gotten hit by fish. <laughs> <laughs> so they say you can There's ask... There's your proof just smacking <laughs> <That's right. laughs> They say you can ask any of the guides there, and they'll tell you about that. Cave of Winds, which I just mentioned, is actually torn down and rebuilt every year. And they do that for stability reasons. There's actually a power generation facilities along the falls, along the river, that diverts the water into it. So generally capacity of the falls is 50 to 75% at any given time. I thought that was interesting. It's not the full capacity of the river that's going over the falls. A couple other quick Interesting facts, Niagara Falls is one of the world's most popular honeymoon destinations, and it has been for more than 200 years. Wow, that's interesting. In 1901, a 63-year-old teacher became the first person to go over the falls intentionally in a custom-made barrel and survive. Yes, I know that. And they had to like pump like air into it. Yeah, very yeah, fascinating. It was pretty interesting. And if you go to the museum or to some of those activities that give you the whole history of all the people that have gone over the falls not all survived it's actually illegal to make an attempt at descending the falls and if you try to you'll be fined ten thousand dollars which i thought was funny i guess that means if they <laughs> if you survive yeah. <laughs> if they, yeah. Uh. about 30 million people visit niagara falls every year and i think there was probably most of those people there this past weekend <laughs> so like i said beth and i traveled up there um, with the Andersons. Our hope was to, one, celebrate the 4th up there, two, get a little ways from the heat. What we didn't know was the, how many people, sheer volume of people, also thought the same idea. 
and we're celebrating the 4th in that region. It was very, very busy. I would highly recommend Niagara Falls in general, but I would not recommend going there over a holiday. Simply on the amount of people there and because yes. of the heat. Because we actually went as a family uh, several years ago over Mother's Day. That's right. So it was pre, it was early season. It wasn't a long weekend. And we didn't have any of the problems that we experienced this past weekend. We as a family over Mother's Day didn't have any of the problems that we, you and I and Eric and Trish experienced this weekend. Encountered this past weekend. Uh, just because of the crowds. I mean, when we went, we got on the Maid of the Mist. We waited in the line at the bottom. Right. But... That was about it. Going to the Cave of Winds was pretty easy. Even just going walking to see the falls was uh, an easy, you know, you could park. Well, this past weekend wasn't, uh, this past week wasn't quite the same. Oh my goodness. It was crazy. Just dri- just driving, trying to get into a parking garage. It was just, it was the crazy. Crazy busy. How many people were there and how many people were trying to move about. If you love crowds, hey, this is your place. Or you don't mind them. Yeah. Right. 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 If you don't, then this is really not the place to be at this time. Right. But if you're with friends, you still make the best of it. It's still a fun time. Right. But the first day we were there, we got to our hotel. There was an, actually an Italian restaurant. I call it a restaurant. It was like a. It was a restaurant. It was like twice the size of this dining room. It was not very big. It wasn't. <laughs> but the food was really good, and mm-hmm. it was rated really high. It was so good. Uh-huh. <laughs> what did you have? I we had bruschetta and margarita pizza. Mm-hmm. And uh, Randy had a salad, too. It was so good. Like, everything tasted fresh and delicious. I was just shocked at how small it was when we walked in. So, it was surprisingly good. We were a little bit worried, I'd say, when we saw the size of it. And we were the very first people there. In fact, we had to knock on the window to get in because it wasn't open yet. Oh, wow. It opened at 4. And around 4.10, we were still standing there. (laughs) So, we we really wanted... We were really hungry. We just wanted to go eat. So we ha- we hung out a little longer, but it was great. Good. And our ho- hotel was about a mile away from the falls, so we walked down. We walked through the city down towards the fall area. Uh, what we wanted to do was look at the falls and then find a spot for two events that happen every night. One is called an illumination, and the other one is the fireworks. So uh, we walked around for a little bit, ended up on the observation tower, which is the tall tower over the Maid of the Mist. Basically found a spot there and hung out there. The illumination was supposed to take place at 8.45, but really it doesn't take place until it gets dark. So it was closer to 9.30-ish, 9.40 by the time it started. Well, it was going. You just couldn't see it because it was too late. Yeah, it was too light outside. But but, as it got darker, it was like, okay, this is a little disappointing. But then it got dark and you could see the colors vibrantly. And it was was really cool. What was it? So basically what they do is they project uh, lights onto the falls. So the American Falls and the Bridal Falls and then over at the Horseshoe Falls. So um, they just put different colors and different tones and switch the colors throughout. So there was, they had green, orange, yellow, blue, light blue, dark blue, um, red, red, white, and then bright. Yeah, at points which is really bright. So they just shine the lights on both sets of falls. And eventually, right before the fireworks, which were about 10 o'clock, they show they put red, white, and blue on the American Falls yeah. and on, on the Horseshoe Falls. And yeah. those were really vibrant at that it point. It was so vibrant, yeah. Wow. So then about 10, the fireworks started. And it was about it was a short display. It was about four minutes, but it was nice because where we were, you could, if you were zoomed all the way out, you could see the fireworks with the red, white, and blue falls. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so you can kind of see that. Uh, so it was a nice display. Those two things happen every night through the summer, the illumination and then the fireworks. So if people are interested in going to the falls, it's, you know, in between, uh, well, anytime during the summer, you can see all those things. And I would suggest going to the observation deck for really good pictures because you can see all of that in front of you. But you do need to go early to make sure you see that. So then the next day, um, Eric and I got up early and we got tickets for Made of the Mist. Now, Made of the Mist is the boats on the American side and on the Canadian side that basically have two tiers of viewing decks that bring you straight to the Horseshoe Falls. And you're basically um, as close to the Horseshoe Falls that you can get and still see anything because there's so much mist blowing up. Um, and it, it kind of, you hang out there for a while 
and you're kind of in some rapids and you're bouncing up and down. You're getting hit with a lot of water. <laughs> a lot of water. A lot of water. And it's it's hilarious. I mean, it's it's a lot of fun. And that we actually, we did that. That's right. Uh, when we went as a family. As right. well. That's right. We did that yeah. as a family. Because I remember you, that. And you have, um, they give you blue rain ponchos with yes. sleeves and hoods and ties that you can tie your hood down if you need to. Yeah. <laughs> when you get close to it. Right. And then eventually it turns. We noticed that the U.S. side, which was pretty busy, was shorter the amount of time that they spent in the falls versus the Canadian side, which must not have been as busy. They spent more time uh, right there at the falls. And then at some point they turned the boat. And then when you turn the boat, you're suddenly, the side of the boat is perpendicular to all the water coming at you. So you turn really quickly and it kind of, it's a rough ride and then you, it uh, smooths out. And then you see the American Falls kind of in front of you. You either see them going out or coming back. And they kind of slow down enough that you can get some really good pictures of the American Falls. Uh, It was a beautiful day from a weather perspective when we were there. So we get some really good pictures of both the Horseshoe Falls and the Bridal Falls, which is right next to the American Falls. You also get a good view of what the Cave of Winds is like because that's right there next to you as you go by the American Falls. And then you go back... Uh, to the little landing area and then you have to exit and back up the elevators to the top side. This is where we encountered the next problem which was the the weight to get from the Maid of the Mist boat ride to the elevators was how long did we figure we were in About alive? an hour and a half. About an hour and a half which and we weren't was, expecting. And it was hot. Yes. Really hot. So Yes, we were not expecting that. So if you are going over the 4th of July, beware. Be prepared. If that's okay with you, hey, great. If it's not, you might want to wait till another day. Right. So the Maid of the Mist actually dates back to 1846. That was when the first boat was launched. Wow. Shortly after, and it was actually launched at first to be basically transportation between the two sides of the river. Just a couple years later, it became a tourist attraction primarily. They put in some bridges, which took away the need for the ferry boat to go back and forth and replace them with the boats for tourist reasons. So it dates all the way back to 1846. We mentioned that in 1901, Annie Taylor became the first person to survive uh, a barrel ride over the falls. In 1960, a boy actually went over the falls and survived. Jim Honeycutt was cruising with his niece and his nephew, uh, Deanne and Roger Woodward, when his boat developed engine troubles, actually got filled with water and uh, pitched over. So all three of them were pitched into the Niagara River. Deanne went towards the shore. She was able to be rescued by some tourists. But Jim Honeycutt and his nephew, Roger, went over the Horseshoe Falls at an estimated 75 miles per hour. But Roger, who was the nephew, survived with just a life jacket on. And it was the captain of the Maid of the Mist who rescued him. So I thought that was an interesting connection that the Maid of the Mist was you know, active back then. And he, they were able to actually spot him, even though they didn't know at the time that it had happened, um, and rescue him. What happened to the uncle? Unfortunately, the uncle did not survive. The other major attraction on the U.S. side connected with the falls is Cave of the Winds. And we went on that the last time we went to Niagara as a family. Mm -hmm. And that's the one that takes you, you actually have to get on Goat Island, which is the the island that is separated from the mainland by the little inlet that becomes the Bridal Veil Falls. So you go over to Goat Island and you can get into the elevator that takes you down to the Cave of the Winds. That pops you out a cave that rolls out a series of decks that you can walk down, get closer to the water, and walk closer to the actual Bridal Veil Falls. Yeah. So you can get within the spray yeah, area. Yeah, definitely another place where you should be wearing a poncho. In right. which they provide a poncho. In which they provide a poncho. And yeah. when we were there, they provided shoes. Yeah, I remember And that bags too. that you could put your shoes in because they know you're going to get waterlogged otherwise. Yeah. yeah. But still, really cool. I actually remember that a lot, even though I was young when we went there. The cave was actually originally discovered in 1901. I always thought this was a only ever a man-made thing, and it wasn't. It actually was a cave that was discovered. More and more people got interested, and then they put in the safety things like the elevators, the um, clearly marked uh, 
cavern or cave out into the um, open air area. And they actually originally had named the cave the Aeolus Cave after the god of the winds. But Aeolus was also Hercules' friend. I was, on, about, I was about to <laughs> say that. The Legends of Hercules. That's funny. His name was spelled with an I, though. It was. Aeolus. Uh, but the guy who actually originally discovered the cave renamed the cavern the Cave of the Winds because he liked that better. There was a bunch of work basically to make that cave area safer, but it was never behind the cave. It was always like next to the cave. And in my head, I kept thinking, but didn't I at some point go behind the cave? So the third area that I haven't been on since I was a kid is actually on the Canadian side. It's called the Journey Behind the Falls. That wasn't always the name. That's been the name since the 90s. And basically that is you go down behind the falls and it used to be you could see behind the falls as you walk by to get to the outer areas. But that was a long time ago. This journey behind the falls basically takes you down near the uh, one side, the Canadian side of the Horseshoe Falls. And you can see the gap between the rocks and the falls. Um, and you used to be able to get really close. Now, for safety reasons, they've kind of backed off that a little bit. Uh, but you can actually see this pretty big area where the wall, the falls are coming down and there's the rock carved out behind. Um, so that's a pretty neat area as well. A couple other interesting things about the falls. In the wintertime, they, they actually can freeze over and they'll display lights up against the frozen background they're of the beautiful. falls. Yeah, they're really pretty if you look online for those. Um, something else I thought was interesting, in 1969, the Army Corps of Engineers turned off the falls on the American side. Um, in order to do um, some work on erosion and erosion rates and make sure the falls were going to stay healthy. Um, they actually have a picture of that. And you should look it up sometime to see the American size and the Bridal Veil Falls completely dry. Um, and the rubble down below, kind of what it looks like. So that was really interesting to see some pictures of what that looked like online. The other thing they say based on the erosion rate that the, the falls will be completely eroded in 50,000 years. So you might want to get your trip scheduled in sometime <laughs> soon. Before that. That's right. So then uh, another thing we want to talk about that we got to do as a group was we ate in town in Niagara at a place called Duff's Buffalo Wings. Uh, they're famous in the area. A friend of mine from work had mentioned them, um, mentioned that restaurant to us or one of those kind of restaurants to us. And we thought they were very good. We had a good time uh, there. But right next to there unbeknownst to us at the time was a chocolatier shop right and it was watson's candy that was inside of it and not from being around buffalo we really didn't know what that was so we were looking around the shop and there was this stuff called sponge candy and i went up to the lady and and just said what is sponge candy and she said, would you like to try a sample? And I said, yes. So I thought she'd take one out and like cut it into fourths for each of us. She got four pieces out. And they were pretty, pretty good and size pieces. And I thought, to be honest, when I saw the shape of them, because they're kind of squarish, I thought they were going to be like marshmallows. When she oh, said yeah. a sponge candy, I was thinking marshmallow that covered. That makes sense. Or chocolate covered marshmallow. Right. But it's not. No, it's not. And Watson's is actually famous in the Buffalo area for its sponge candy. I was actually watching different YouTube videos and there were some segments on TV about Watson's candy. Watson's famous sponge candy is made all year round and produce approximately 35 tons of it annually. Now this is just the sponge candy, not any, not the rest of it. So the award-winning candy is crispy, tender chunks of caramelized sponge sugar drenched in our wonderfully creamy chocolate and it really is good made with only fair trade certified cocoa it's available covered in milk chocolate dark chocolate and orange get through the history quickly i want to try it i know i know right so the the lady who gave us us and the andersons a sample gave us a milk chocolate covered piece of sponge candy that's what we brought home as well to try during the podcast right and apparently, the sponge candy is a distinctly Western New York treasure. This one article describes it as a chocolate-covered crunchy cloud cube that melts <laughs> into caramel 
sugar on the tongue. No one can say for sure who invented sponge candy or when it exactly was invented, says Jim Watson. Nobody knows, and if they say they know, they'd be hard-pressed to prove it. Many of the immigrants who settled in Queen City in the late 1880s brought with them the confectionery traditions of their home countries, most notably the Germans and Greeks. Yeah, we actually saw that in other podcasts where people from your other parts of Europe came over and, and started those candy yep. things. You know, a number of the other podcasts we've had where we talked about candy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Buffalo's position along major shipping routes meant that raw materials like sugar and cocoa were easy to come by and reasonably inexpensive. Western <laughs> New Yorkers, and this is from WIVB4. So this is one of the local stations. TV radio. or radio? Yeah. One of the local TV stations says, and their little thing said, Western New Yorkers love sponge candy, and we received thousands of nominations and votes in this week's poll to select the winner of the Buffalo's Best Sponge Candy title. Watson's Chocolates came out on top, thanks to its unique combination of caramelized sponge sugar enrobed in creamy fair trade cocoa chocolate. Watson's Chocolates president, Whitney Watson Beecher, says it's hard to describe sponge candy to someone who's never had it, but it's easy to see what sets Watson's sponge candy apart. Definitely the quality of the chocolate, she said, the thickness of the coating, and the fact that we use only the very heart of the sponge where it's the most tender. So it was interesting watching these different videos of how they make it. it it's just a fascinating process. And they do cut out, cut off most of the edge and only use this, the part that's right in the center. I would suggest you go ahead and take a look at some of these videos. Randy and I bought a little thing that has four pieces of the sponge candy with the milk chocolate in it. So I'm going to open it. And we're each going to taste it, and we can tell you what we think of it when we do. <laughs> this particular candy is handmade. We got a little four-pack. It it's a cute little package with a little gold bow. But if you look at the chocolates next to each other, they are not uniform like a factory would make. No, no, no. These, these are cut by people, but they're all generous-sized, and... I guess it's time to try it. See it's what about, think. I'd say it's about an inch by inch by about... Probably an quarters, inch and a half, at least. Three quarters of an inch tall. All right, we're, e- we we're now eating them. The chocolate is very creamy. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So what do you think of the sponge cake? It's a nice, thick coating of milk chocolate. And it's a delicious it flavor. It's very flavorful chocolate. The texture is very unique. It is, isn't it? Mm-hmm. The sponge part is because um, it's really not puffy like uh, like a marshmallow. Like it's you airy, would yeah, but crunchy. But crunchy, kind of like biting into styrofoam in a good way. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no, it's not because I, that makes me cringe to think of biting into styrofoam. But so it I, is a it's a crunch, not a mm-hmm. definitely a crunch. And I think I expected the middle to be very like distinctive in its flavor because you think of like mm-hmm. just regular candy that has something in the middle right like you think of the Cadbury eggs right with thin chocolate coating mm-hmm. with a distinctive flavor in the middle mm-hmm. um, and yeah this is very unique right I so like it. it's like just a, to complete your thought though so it doesn't have a strong flavor the um, sponge part isn't like a super strong flavor mm-hmm. it's a mild flavor mm-hmm. that goes well with the chocolate it's like a toffee caramelized taste. Right. But mild. Like not mild. a strong taste. Right. Mm-hmm. And very... When I think of a sponge, I think bouncy almost. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it's not. It's, mm-hmm. It has that nice crunch to it. It's the airy part of the sponge. That they're it's a sponge to. before oh. the water. Try bouncing it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's really good. I can see why... Yes. Western New Yorkers love it. Mm-hmm. It's yes. definitely unique. Kind of a unique local thing. Definitely. That, that you won't get other places. And that's what the lady had said that it's a um, it's a famous Buffalo thing, but it's really a famous Western New York thing. Right. I really like it. Thank too. you for sharing this treat. You're welcome. It was very it was good. very exciting. The anticipation was almost better than the treat itself. Wasn't it? Was it better? No, it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> so just to wrap up our Niagara section, I would again highly encourage people, if they haven't gone to Niagara, to definitely visit 
just be aware of crowds over certain holidays are going to be uh, slow you down a bit. They're uh, a bit. Yeah, when we went by ourselves as a family, we were able to do the Cave of Winds, the uh, Maid of the Mist, and go to a uh, fort. I think in a day and a half, basically, we did yeah. everything, as well as look at the falls in multiple places. Oh yeah. Uh, this past weekend, we wouldn't have been able to. You could basically do one thing. The crowds were just too big. Yeah, it just slowed you down a lot. But definitely worth it. There's also Fort Niagara that we didn't go to this time, although they were having a French-Indian War reenactment at the time. Um, so the, the weather the weather and the crowds kind of deterred us from going there. But there are a number of other things you can do just on the, on the American side. Then you add in the Canadian side, and there's even more opportunities uh, of interesting things to do. And I encourage people when you go to places like that to try local goods, local activities, whatever it may be. Uh, That makes the trip even more fun. So as always, to finish up our conversation for the week, we end with our future festivities. So future festivities for the week of July 22nd. July 22nd is Hammock Day. Eric Anderson would like that. (laughs) That's right. July 23rd is Vanilla Ice Cream Day. Oh, Randy Moon would like that. I very much would like that. That's my favorite ice cream. What's your favorite ice cream? Uh, mine is probably still vanilla. Vanilla. What's your favorite ice cream, Beth? Mine is Edie's chocolate. What's you, Sydney? I'm not a big ice cream person, but if I had to have ice cream, it would be Edie's vanilla ice cream with peanut butter. Like peanut butter that you personally add? Not yes. peanut butter that's already in there. Yeah. Correct. July 24th is Cousins Day. So say hi to your cousins that day. July 25th is Culinarians Day. Mm. July 26th is Aunt and Uncle Day. So you've got Cousins Day on the 24th, <laughs> Aunt and Uncle Day on the 26th. July 27th is National Day of the Cowboy. July 28th is National Milk Chocolate Day. Mm. As always, you can reach us via social media at Twitter, uh, at Holiday underscore Moons, on Instagram, at Holiday Moons. Uh, you can find us on Facebook by searching Holiday Moons, all one word. And uh, you can always reach out to us via email at holidaymoons at gmail.com. So for Sydney, Cole, Randy, and Beth, happy, happy summer! summer. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs>